0: Today's conversation is brought to you by Youth Theology Network. They are your resource for helping high school students understand if God is calling them to ministry. Their online hub is where you can connect with programs across the country, direct students to a program that meets their needs, read inspiring stories, and find vocational discernment resources. With YTN, you can help students take their next faithful step. For more information, please visit youththeologynetwork.org. That's youththeologynetwork.org. research into environmentalism, it was just a, an obvious go-to. What is the constitution and bylaws of ancient Israel? That would be the book of Deuteronomy. What does that constitution mean? have to say about israel's responsibility and concern for the land and the creature and the great gifts that yahweh had entrusted to them so it's a really easy
1: today's conversation is the podcast of the national association of evangelicals i'm your host walter kim nae president In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and to navigate today's complexity with biblical clarity. Today's conversation is with Dr. Sandra Richter, an Old Testament scholar and expert in ancient Israelite society and economy. We look at scripture and talk about how it bears on our understanding of the complicated topic of environmental stewardship. It's a compelling conversation for anyone seeking to follow Christ in a fallen world. Listen in. Sandy, thank you so much for joining me. Oh,
0: Walter, it is such a joy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So Sandy,
1: we went through the same doctoral program at Harvard in the Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations Department, although we weren't there at the same exact time. Um, I understand your research and expertise is different from mine, and I'm really eager to be learning from you today. Uh, In particular, your scholarship has focused on Deuteronomy, and its impact. Um, Mm -hmm. So so tell us about your interest in Deuteronomy and specifically how did that intersect with your interest in environmental practices today?
0: Mm. Well, like so many of us, I, I went into my doctoral program, not exactly sure what I wanted to write on. And my interest in Deuteronomy really grew while I was studying all that crazy stuff we do in near Eastern languages and civilizations. But the way Deuteronomy impacted uh, the environmental studies is very clear-cut. Oh, back in, gosh, my very first post at Asbury Theological Seminary, we started exploring the concept of environmental stewardship as an institution. And it was tasked to me to come up with a biblical theological explanation to my community as to why this mattered and as I know we'll talk about a lot over the course of the next hour that's that's the bottom line with any Christian community we need to be able to speak through our rule of faith and praxis or we've got nothing to say and so in my own um, research into environmentalism it was just an obvious go-to what is the constitution and bylaws of ancient Israel that would be the book of Deuteronomy, what does that constitution have to say about Israel's responsibility and concern for the land and the creature and the great gifts that Yahweh had entrusted to them? So it's a really easy connect for me.
1: Hmm. Well, easy connect for you, um, but maybe not so Mm. obvious to the person who's grown up and heard Deuteronomy preached or read Deuteronomy Uh, in their personal devotions and and maybe never heard a sermon on Mm -hmm. environmentalism or never had an application point uh, in terms of environmentalism. So I'm very curious as as the conversation goes on for you to pull out some of the the actual points of connections, Um, Mm -hmm. but before we do that, I wanna back up a bit and ask you the bigger question of just generally. How do you approach the theology of any topic in Scripture, um, whether it's environmentalism or any other topic? Is there just some general principles that you work mm-hmm. with, or an approach that you work with?
0: Yes, uh, absolutely. And um, honestly, my my approach to biblical theology is probably most accessible in uh, the book Epith of Eden, which is probably the book I'm known the most for. I am. I am an offspring of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and Meredith Klein was one of my mentors. And there's some in your audience who are going, oh yeah, I know about Meredith Klein. Um, I was at the seminary during some of, uh, really his uh, approaching retirement years, and he made such a profound impact on me and on students like me, um, Kathy McDowell, Carol Kaminsky, uh, Donna Petter, if you know any of those names. And what he taught us and what I do is a whole Bible picture. What we find in our biblical text, our rule of faith and praxis is Yahweh's self revelation. I mean, that's what the Bible is. It's God explaining himself to humanity. And as he explains himself to humanity, what we're uh, uh, getting to do is follow his interactions with humanity from the beginning of time to the end of time. In other words, we are studying the great story of Eden to the new Jerusalem and everything in between. And when I talk to my students, I talk about the great rescue plan that lies between Genesis three and Revelation 21. And that great rescue plan is as you know so well is the story of getting Adam back in the garden. That's what we're up to. So whenever it comes time to explore a topic a topic like environmentalism, a topic like racial justice, a topic like the care of the marginalized. I think our responsibility as exegetes is to be able to track that topic from Eden to the New Jerusalem. That's how biblical theology is done. And so what we're doing is we're asking the question at every juncture of God's interaction with humanity, how did he deal with this problem? Was he concerned about this problem? Is this a problem? And how does the character of God reflect on this issue? And so that's what I do in Stewards of Eden. I take the issue of environmentalism and I ask the question, is this actually an issue that God cares about? Is this an issue that we should care about? And of course, the answer is, if God cares about it, yeah, we should care about it. And so I walk that issue through the great uh, covenantal administrations of the Bible. What's happening in Eden? What happens under Noah? Abraham, Moses, David, and the New Covenant. And what is the final picture in the New Jerusalem? And what I argue is that this issue of concern for the planet, concern for sustainable land use, concern for the wild creature, the domestic creature, and the marginalized that depend on all of the same, that this is a regular testimony within the biblical text, And God is constantly positioning himself into a a posture where he is deeply concerned about these things. And so although the issue has gotten incredibly politicized in our generation, reality is that the witness of the text and the witness of Deuteronomy um, goes all the way back to the origins of time telling us, yes, God is deeply concerned about this.
1: All right, I want to draw this out a little bit more with the Stewards of Eden book that you mm-hmm. mentioned, um, and you've alluded to the the fact that this has become a contentious issue, mm. um, paralyzing us. Uh, and, and why draw this out a little bit? I imagine this is something that you get asked quite a bit. Why would you even bother talking about it? It's such a divisive issue, and mm. um, and so wh- why do you think it is divisive? <coughs> why why do you think it's so paralyzing?
0: Well, I do think it's a divisive issue, but honestly, I think most important issues are divisive, right? Isn't this the task of the prophet to uh, speak truth to power? Isn't this our job as salt and light and citizens of another kingdom to stand constantly in contrast to a culture who doesn't know the character of our God and is living out their lives accordingly? So being divisive, hey, welcome to kingdom work. If you weren't ready to be divisive, you should have shown, chosen another career. So that would be um, statement one. Um, why has it gotten so divisive? Oh, there are so many reasons, but in the introduction of Stewards of Eden, I distill it down to three because I've been speaking about environmentalism publicly since about 2005, which is getting further and further ago every, every year that passes. Um, I gave my first sermon on environmentalism in 2005, and I did it at Asbury Theological Seminary, and it was dicey, and we were scared, and I had no idea how folks would respond, and I'm going to guess that most of people in your audience have never heard anyone speak from the pulpit on environmentalism, so As I've spoken, and gosh, I have gone from California to Atlanta, from seminary context to university contexts. I spoke in Nebraska, where most of the audience was involved in the cattle industry. I did a clergy retreat in southern Mississippi on environmental stewardship as an expression of holiness. So as I've done all of this over the years, I think I could distill the issues into three. And the first one is the political issue. And I think what makes this issue so divisive in states that uh, environmentalism has become guilty by association. In our country, uh, politics are pretty polarized and it seems in this season, they're more polarized than I've ever seen them in my life. And as a result, we have this constant message and forgive me for being so blunt, But the idea is, are you a Christian or are you a Democrat? (laughs) The idea that uh, if you're going to be a Christian in American politics, you are therefore pro-life and you are therefore Republican. And since environmentalism is classically a Democratic issue, there is this kind of innate bias, again, of guilt by association, that environmentalism cannot be a kingdom issue because it's on the wrong side of the political line. And then people get all ideologized about their politics and uh, environmentalism becomes uh, yet another trajectory to throw over the wall at your political opponents. And so I remind people that their theology is not to be defined by Washington, D.C., that our ultimate allegiance is the kingdom of God, not our particular political party. And reality is that Christians have always and will always, if we live in obedience to our sovereign, stand in contrast to the cultural values of our day. And so let's put environmentalism out of the political picture and let's investigate it through the lens of theology and the postures and commitments of our king, not the postures and commitments of our necessarily our senators, congressmen or president. So that's the first issue. Then I would say the second issue is one that besets most issues of social justice in uh, American conversation. And that is that we as Americans are privileged enough that we don't see the impact of our own behavior. We don't look out our front windows and see the lunar landscapes that have been forged by mountaintop removal coal mining. We do not on a regular basis bump in to the Haitians who are living in absolute economic collapse, largely moved forward by their environmental collapse. We don't have good friends in Madagascar, where one out of every 10 women dies in childbirth due to malnutrition because of the raping of their land by colonial powers. So we don't see the environmental impact on the marginalized. And since we don't see it, we don't know that it's real. So a big part of the environmental task is helping the American church see what a lack of concern for sustainability is doing to the widow and the orphan. Because I know the church, and I know that when we see those realities, we respond. And at our best, we're the first to respond. But when we don't know, we can't respond. So that's the second issue. And then I think the third one, and one that really does enter into theology, is that we, the church, have been... Uh, erroneously educated that the only thing that's going to happen to this planet in the eschaton, and that means the new Jerusalem, the final days is that it's all going to burn. And since it's all going to burn, uh, isn't it wise for us to use these environmental resources as uh, aggressively as possible in order to convert souls? And so we stand in that uh, strange posture of um, let it all rip so that we can convert souls. But this is a false uh, interpretation. And most of the New Testament scholars that your audience would hail as their mentors and leaders, people like N.T. Wright, Ben Witherington, uh, Douglas Moo, they would all agree with me. No, no, no. Romans 8 is very clear that this planet is not going to burn. It's going to be resurrected and it's gonna be resurrected right along with the children of Adam. So those are the three issues, I think, that confuse the church, paralyze the church, and wind up uh, making environmentalism a really divisive issue.
1: Sandy, that was very um, lucid oh, and good. quite hard-hitting. Oh. Um, how do we uproot those misconceptions? How do we move forward? What, mm-hmm. what do we need to learn? Uh, from scripture that helps us move forward? Yeah.
0: Um, thank you for asking that question. I, I think that our biblical text actually has a great deal to say about environmental concern, but I think that our most recent generation, uh, let me actually put this back a good 150 years that we just haven't seen it. So what do we need to do? We need to reintroduce ourselves to our own story. We need to meet our own people. We need to listen to the voice of scripture and we need to obey it. Isn't this always the answer, right? That we are in the process of being conformed to the image of the sun. And it is so easy to be distracted. We have so many voices shouting at us. And as regards environmental concern, we have so many voices shouting at us that leave us confused and again, paralyzed. So what, what I do in stewards and it's a brief book and it's intentionally a brief book because I wrote it kind of as a tract. I wanted it to be a book that you could sit down and if you wanted to actually read it in one sitting, it's, it's about a hundred pages and it's got lots of stories, lots of case studies. Um, I decided that I had to write it when I was uh, teaching at Wheaton college and Uh, I'm going to guess that most of your audience knows Wheaton College. It uh, is often hailed as the flagship of evangelical undergraduate institutions. And what I know of Wheaton from my years there is it is filled with some of the most passionate, integrous young adults I've ever met in my life. You, You gotta love the Wheaties. Every one of them can write and every one of them can sing. It's amazing. I don't know how that is. Um, but as I got to know these students and we started talking about these topics, they cared. They cared deeply about the initial uh, issues, of environmental concern, but they also cared deeply about the kingdom and they cared deeply about their mentors. And they were paralyzed because how can I love both? In fact, I tell a story at the beginning of the book about the first time Kristen Page, she's a um, an endowed chair in biology at Wheaton College. We actually taught a course on environmental concern. The subtitle titled was The Bible and Biology. And we did this little... Um, icebreaking exercise at the very beginning of class and every teacher out there has deployed this icebreaker. You uh, you know if you have a class of under 30 you can you can make this work and it basically works like this. You say, tell us your name, your major, and why you decided to take this course. And you go around the room and everybody says their name and everybody speaks and it sort of you know gets everybody moving a little bit. Well as we went around the room, every one of our theologically informed, politically concerned, um, academically excellent, young emerging adults had the exact same answer to that question. We were stunned. They gave their name and their major, which was differentiated, but then each of them said something like, I went camping all the time when was, I, I was a kid and I, I learned to love the mountains, or I'm a sailor or a surfer, or I love to backpack, or I, I, you know, I'm just enthralled by ornithology and bird watching. But all of my life, I thought as a Christian, I wasn't allowed to love those things and love the kingdom at the same time. So I'm so glad you offered this course. We went all the way around the room. Everyone said the same thing. I looked at Kristen. She looked at me. And she said, me too. And I said, me too. So I decided I had to write this book because I had to give that generation an explanation from their rule of faith and praxis that God loves the same thing they love. And they're allowed to love it too. And then I thought, okay, if I really score, they're going to be able to take this book home and give it to their parents. And their parents are gonna be able to read through this book and recognize the messages of environmental sustainability and creature care. And they're gonna recognize those messages as coming from their rule of faith and praxis. And if I really score, they're gonna be able to hand it off to their grandparents and see the same. So my very long answer to your question is we need to get back into our Bibles. We need to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And we need to realize that this has become a crisis in our generation that is deeply impacting not only us, but the unsaved and the unchurched and the marginalized who live on the edges. And just like we have stood up for the orphan and we have stood up for those who didn't have medical care, and in the 19th century, the best of us packed our lives in coffins and headed off to regions unknown in the name of Jesus, we need to do it again. That's so compelling. Um,
1: and, and yet the work is, is laborious, it's hard, it's um, Slow. Yeah, it's slow. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we need to be deeply rooted in scripture. Um, so draw this out a little bit. Um, you've uh, alluded to this a number of times in the conversation you develop in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, ancient Israel, mm-hmm. how they related to land, to animals, to the vulnerable populations. Make the connection between the practices of ancient Israel, which are so distant from mm-hmm. our typical lived experience, to what we experience today in modern economies, um, in modern engagement with our environment.
0: Yeah. All right. So this is where Deuteronomy comes in, and this is where all of the law codes of the Old Testament come in. Um, As as I said before, I walk the issue through the biblical text. So we start off in Eden and we see that Eden ultimately in the land, in the, the words of ancient treaties is a land grant that God gives Eden to Adam and Eve for them to flourish and to thrive and to make use of the land and its resources. But he never turns over ownership of this land or this universe to Adam and Eve. As we see in the perfect seven day structure of Genesis chapter one, Yahweh always retains his sovereignty over all of this. Adam and Eve are stewards, but as the definition of the word communicates, a steward doesn't own anything. A steward is stewarding the property of the sovereign. So that's the blueprint, the ideal design. Then we move into the great story of Israel. And the reason, as you've already alluded to, that Israel is so important is it is the first story of a landed people who belongs to God in a fallen universe. So this is this is critically important. So Israel, the kingdom of God, God's people are also given a land grant. And what they're given is the territory of Canaan. Yeah. and they're given this territory as a land grant it is Yahweh's he retains the right to pull it back if Israel fails to keep the covenant and as we all know Israel does fail to keep the covenant and he does pull it back that's what the exile is all about but the law codes that Yahweh gives to Israel and that would be the book of Deuteronomy let's circle back to that The Book of Leviticus and the center chunk of the Book of Exodus, these are the three great law codes of the Old Testament, all three of them focus on issues that we think are totally contemporary issues. They focus in on sustainable agriculture. What? That's in the Bible? Yes, it is in the Bible. They focus in on sustainable agriculture, care and stewardship of the wild creature so they have the ability to maintain their populations. Humane treatment of the domestic creature and how the marginalized will only thrive if sustainable land use is practiced. Now, as I say these things, the environmentalists who are listening to us are like, "Uh, wait, that's exactly what we're studying in environmental uh, science in my undergrad program right now. And let me tell you that Deuteronomy and Leviticus are full of these laws. So we're dealing with Uh, an Iron Age community. That's an uh, an archeological term for uh, the years between 1000 BC and 586 BC. Okay, this is the monarchic period of Israel. This is your Old Testament story. These are when the law codes apply. So this is a long time ago. You know, this is before anybody's got a combine, before the industrial revolution, uh, before a bajillion pieces of information that are now just commonplace have been revealed. But there's an ideology. There's an ideology behind Israel's uh, practices. And it's that ideology that I believe we have to adapt. Um, Just like thou shalt not murder is as applicable today as it was then, even though now we can murder in a school shooting with an AK-47, and back then they could only murder with an ax or a club, it doesn't change the fact that murder is still wrong. So that's a a very crude example. But what we see in uh, Israel's practice is that they are required to, for example, with sustainable land practice, uh, they are required to allow the land to lie fallow. And again, these laws are all over the Old Testament. Let me quote for you Leviticus 25, uh, 4 through 7, right here. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest. Oh, we've heard about the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath becomes essential to all of this because the Sabbath applies not only to humanity, it applies to the animals who work for them. It applies to the land that works for them. So, but during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath belonging to Yahweh. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Your harvest aftergrowth you shall not reap. And the grapes of your untrimmed vines, you shall not gather. Rather, the Sabbath growth of the land shall be your food belonging to you, your male servant, your female servant, your hired man, your temporary resident, and the immigrants among you even your domesticated beast and the wild animal that is in your land shall have all its crops to eat. Now, if you know anything about agricultural science, you know that it is essential to allow the soil to rejuvenate itself. And anyone who's practicing organic farming right now is practicing fallow. And this Sabbath law for Israel is essentially a fallow law. So not only does it allow the soil to rejuvenate itself, but the Israelites were allowed to let their livestock um, um, uh, graze on these fallow fields. So what you're doing is you're allowing the soil to rejuvenate itself. You're plowing under a nitrogen rich crop to um, build up the soil and also the residue in the soil that helps it retain water. And all your agriculturalists who are listening, oh yeah. Um, But on top of that, the livestock who are wandering through are very generously, generously depositing their potassium and phosphorus rich manure as they wander through the fields. And they're also stomping through as cattle and sheep and goats, and so they're churning up the soil. Then on top of that, during this fallow year, all of your bugs, you know, the insects that have said, oh, yeah, he grows barley here every year. Let's plant our eggs here. And then all of our offspring will have exactly what they need next year. Well, those eggs hatch and there's no barley growing. And so those pests also perish. So this is a very simple way to make sure that the land stays uh, fertile. And it stays fertile for the next generation. In fact, as you read through the Sabbath laws, you'll hear Yahweh shouting at his people. The reason you keep the Sabbath with your fields is because I want these fields to be as fertile for the next generation as they are for you. And this is another critical principle. This idea that Israel was commanded by covenant law. Now, they broke this law. Let's not be idealists here. They broke this law. And we actually have some pretty firm statistics of what happens in the ancient Near East because the fallow law is being broken and shortened. And uh, you know as well as I do, um, uh, Torquil Diakusen actually talks about salt in Mesopotamian fields and the collapse of fertility under Hammurabi shortening the fallow cycle, but it's commanded all the same. So um, one of the, the principles here is that the Israelites must plan for the next generation. So short-term crisis management in response to the urgent is simply not tolerated in Israelite government. Rather, long-term management that forces present-day compromise for the sake of long-term fertility is the essential ideological principle. And another principle that I elevate in the text is this critical idea that a population is not allowed or should not be thinking in terms of taking from the land everything it can, but rather taking everything it needs. This is a big difference. I've got a little proverb that I throw around a good bit The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. It has been given to us to use in our need. But not to abuse in our greed. So this is stuff that's in there, and if you want to talk about humane animal husbandry or care for the wild creature, all the way back in 1200 BC, we can talk about that too.
1: Sandy, you've given us so much to consider, and this expansive um, view, both theologically and practically, of the Sabbath is is really um, game changing. You know, if the, the Sabbath is not merely in, in this description, not merely a time where we stop and you know, go to church or rest or watch football, uh, the Sabbath here mm. is something that is much more expansive in what you've described.
0: Yes, yes, and I think the Sabbath is just on so many fronts in our current generation, just critical for our well-being as people, as the church, as communities. Because what the Sabbath principle shouts at us constantly is stop, rest, stop consuming, stop producing. And I think this is a huge critique of American culture. I think we have been trained since the most tenderest of age to squeeze every ounce out of every minute, out of every hour, out of every resource. And as a result, we're killing ourselves. And not only we're we killing ourselves, but we're killing our planet as well.
1: If I hear you and uh, bring this conversation to um, some themes, what seems to resonate in your work um, are these principles of stewardship. And hence mm, the yes. name, you know, that wh- whatever you're trying to get at about environmentalism uh, and its place within the Christian faith. It, it's profoundly rooted in this notion that we are called to be stewards. And, and we yes. get that. Uh, we're called to be stewards of our money. We're called to be stewards of our children. We know mm. that we don't own these things. Um, and you're, you're merely asking us to apply that in this direction of the planet and, and, and showing us that that's in scripture as well. This notion of stewardship, which I, I think those of evangelical faith can readily and- very specifically apply uh, with respect to their work, their money, their, their family lives mm-hmm. um, now has a greater scope of application, the environment. Mm-hmm. You've also talked about this notion of planning for the future. Yes. That it's not merely the sense of what we gain now, but that's that's very evangelical. I mean, recognizing that what we see in this lifetime is not all that yes. exists and that we really need to prepare for a kingdom yet to come. So you're tapping into things that people of faith um, have applied so readily. Yes. But not always to the environment. And and you noted that. Yes. Um, And I I want to touch on this notion of the end times, um, Mm -hmm. because you've alluded to the fact that maybe our view of the end times is one of the reasons why we haven't applied it to the environment. and specifically with this notion of revelation 21 draw out for us what a you know a robust and more richly and, and truly formed vision of the end of all things mm. will do for our present of all things
0: yeah yeah gosh so many things in there it's so much fun talking to you uh so as we look at the the final days, which of course is what we live for. And and we get so confused on that. And I, I am convinced that every aspect of modern life is designed to pull that to the periphery so that we're not looking at the final days and what Jesus ultimately is calling us to, and not only calling us to, but has promised us and what we're, what we're living for. The resurrection of this planet, the resurrection of our bodies, the new Jerusalem, when Adam and Eve are finally brought back into the garden and we get to start this great plan all over again. Okay, so as we look at that eschaton, uh, this is one of the big issues with environmental concern. I've named it as the third issue. Uh, we look at passages like 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13, and we hear that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements be destroyed with an intense heat. And people read through those passages and they logically assume that the entire planet is just going to burn up and God's going to poof create a new one. And it's very understandable why we would move that direction. But of course, whenever we read the Bible, we have to read it in context of the entire Bible, not just pull a passage out. And one of the things that your listeners might not be fully aware of is this concept of the day of the Lord, which is What you're alluding to. And the day of the Lord uh, in the Old Testament, the Yom Yahweh, is this great moment when Yahweh returns and delivers his people and judges their adversaries. In the New Testament, it gets a new name. It's the same event. We call it the Second Coming when God returns and delivers his people and judges his adversaries. It's the same event. And we're looking to this moment when at last those who persecuted and crushed God's people get their due, when every unjust, abusive government is finally brought to its knees, when the the persecutor, the pedophile, the judgment finally comes. And we look forward to that day. But we hear in the scripture about how there'll be signs in the heavens and the sun will be turned red and the moon will turn to blood. And of course, ah, the planet is going to burn as well. We have to juxtapose that with what you have said in Revelation chapter 21, and we have to juxtapose it with Romans chapter eight as well. So um, let's take a quick look at Romans chapter eight. It makes this statement for I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, best translated frustration, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And here it is. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. So what we're hearing Paul say is that our resurrection which is the final proof of our salvation because we're not being saved to be angels floating around in in the heavens playing harps we're being resurrected to be fully human living in a, a full a fully concrete creation that our resurrection is being juxtaposed with the revela- with the resurrection on this planet so we get to revelation chapter 21 And we hear about a new heaven and a new earth. We hear about a new Jerusalem that's being lowered from the sky. And we hear that the result of this new heaven and the new earth in chapter 22 is that there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him and they'll see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night And they will not have need of light of the lamp nor light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. So, Walter, what we're hearing about is the resurrection of the planet. And this resurrection means that this planet, its creatures, are not simply disposable any more than the children of Adam and Eve are disposable. Rather, God's got a plan, and that plan is to redeem and resurrect not only us, but to redeem and resurrect this planet. So in light of that, we as Christians, we can't just look simply look at this planet and say, disposable, use it up. Rather, we have to look at this planet as a sacred trust that God has placed within our realm of authority and has commanded us not to abuse and exploit, but to manage and celebrate. So again, a very long answer to your question.
1: Sandy, this is such rich content. Um, You've covered a lot of terrain. And as we bring things to a close, I want to recognize that we do live in complex times. And we've spent Mm -hmm. a portion of our conversation acknowledging some of that complexity. Uh, And there are a lot of challenges to address these issues. Um, And in some ways, until the return of Christ, we're always going to have these challenges. Yes. In the midst of all of this, can you share
0: with us what gives you hope? Mm. Uh, Another great question. Honestly, what gives me hope is the resurrection. And I, I don't mean to say that in any way casually. I spend <laughs> I spend most days with my concerns about the survival of this planet, of endangered species, of water systems, of the ocean, of the good Malagasy people of Madagascar, of what's going on in Haiti. It's back here all the time. And, and it burdens my soul um, deeply. And if I did not believe in the sovereignty of God, and that he is truly going to step back into this dimension and he's going to make it all right, I, I would collapse under the burden of that concern. And I, again, I don't say this lightly at all. It is the hope of the resurrection that keeps me in their swinging. It's the hope of the resurrection that I know that it is work in God's people, where I know that the Holy Spirit speaks to them and that At first, they might not hear my voice on these concerns, but eventually they will hear my voice on these concerns. That gives me hope to just uh, stay in there and and keep swinging. I will find myself on a regular basis, sometimes out in my backyard taking care of my chickens or maybe on a a beautiful hike in the the San Padres, um, overwhelmed at, at the beauty of God's creation, and then the immediate answer is, but oh my gosh, what are we doing to it? I will have those voices you know, collide in my brain and I will find myself whispering in my soul, sweet Lord Jesus, please let it be true. Please let it be true that the garden's gonna be resurrected. Please let it be true that the New Jerusalem is coming. That every tree, and every ocean, and every river, and every spring, and every creature that we have foolishly pushed over the brink of extinction will be restored. And that this Daughter of Eve is actually going to be able to see all of your glory restored. So perhaps a heavy response, but that's what gives me hope.
1: Our guest on today's conversation has been Dr. Sandra Richter. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Sandy. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use Influence for Good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.